Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And in this one, we ask, should Jalen Green be benched? Can Davis Mills pull a Joe Burrow? What do I mean by that? Wait and see. And is Terry Poole a worthy Astros Hall of Famer? Joining me is my co-host, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and veteran journalist Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, we've heard rumors that you abandoned us on the podcast last week because Casario (laughs) was impressed with your lack of coaching experience and needed to see you about a position. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he he did give me a call and we talked, but, you know, he just doesn't offer me enough money and enough, you know, I I feel like it should have more power. I mean, just because I have no coaching experience, that that shouldn't be a problem, should it? So you don't want... Somebody that's looking over your shoulder as you're trying to call a timeout in the fourth quarter? Yeah, I had a few bosses like that in radio. We didn't get along too well. So, yeah, probably not. Yeah, we're going to get to the Texans in just a bit. But the Rockets, let's talk about them because they're back to getting smashed. Their last three losses were by 30, 15, and 14. Losing by 14 to the Warriors Monday, that's no shame. But losing to the Spurs by 30, and the Damian Lillard list Blazers by 15, that's not good. They're getting beat by an average, Stephen, of two points more per game than the pathetic Thunder. Ouch. Yeah, that's a bit much. Well, you know, I wish I could say I was surprised, Robert, but this is just what we're going to see. This this up and down roller coaster that, you know, when this team looks like they're starting to show some signs of something, then they regress a step back. And I think a lot of it just comes from... You know, the age factor, you know, when, you, when you're trying to learn the NBA game, this is what happens, but it's still tough to watch. I mean, if you're a Rockets fan, it's still painful to watch. I mean, you see some great signs from the Golden State game. They fought, you know, they, they were down by 18, I think, at one point, and then, what was it, 14 later on, and trying to make a run. But obviously this team is just, just too inconsistent for us to know from one night to the next, what you're going to find. Yeah, I I always hear this. Well, they're fighting. They're fighting hard. They're fighting back from this deficit and that. How about fighting from the beginning of the game instead of waiting until you're behind by 20? Look, it's going to happen, Stephen. You're going to get behind in a game, and the other team is going to go, okay, we don't have to try as hard, and they're going to let you back in the game. So I don't know how much of it is you're fighting and how much of it is they just aren't trying as hard because that's what human beings do. Well, I think it's a little of both. Yeah, it's a, it's a psychological thing for sure. You know, if you're up by 20 points in the first quarter, you're thinking, man, we got a long way to go, you know, but we're not, you know, we can kind of let off the gas a little bit. We can always turn it back on. I think it's a subconscious thing, Robert. I don't, you know, I certainly didn't play competitive college or pro sports, but I have played amateur sports. And I know that there are just times you feel like, oh man, we've, we've got this game in the bag. You're up by 10 runs with two innings to go or something. And you feel you can do it. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a conscious thing. Yeah, the point being, though, is I'm saying, look, don't get excited, Rockets fans and Rockets media, because, oh, they've got such heart. They never give up in a game. It's, that's, that's, what about, you make my point, Stephen. That's the problem. Is yeah. I, 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 There's nothing about this team that's really getting me excited right now. The two guys that we were all excited about to start the season, Shangun and Jalen Green, have not played well at all in a long time. And and as far as Shane Goon is concerned, this goes back now a month and a half to the Hawks game. Jalen Green, sometimes it's important in the NBA to actually earn your minutes. And Jalen Green isn't earning his minutes right now. 
And that's got to be a serious argument to be made where you want to just say, hey, you're the worst player in the rotation and you actually might be better off served off the bench and trying to not just uh, earn minutes, but, you know, earn your way back on the court because uh, that's what players that end up being good have to do. And he's got the worst PER, Stephen, on the whole team. Josh Christopher deserves to play more than Jalen Green. It's not even debatable right now, Stephen. Wouldn't you start Christopher over him? I don't disagree with what you're saying, Robert. But, you know, if if they were a better team and they, they had a better chance and they had better players, I'd say, yeah, he absolutely deserves to sit on the bench. But this is your number one draft choice. You're not going to take him out at this point. At, at this juncture of the season with the way things are, does Josh Christopher need to play over him, you know, logically speaking? Sure he does. He's, I mean, the results are proving it, but they're not going to do that with Jalen Green at this point, I don't think. Yeah, they're not. I just say that that might be a big mistake. This is part of what his development is going to be, and he's just going to have to, he's going to have to figure it out. Now, you get into next year and you're still seeing a lot of this, then I say you really have some cause for concern. But, you know, and, and I know this is a different sport in a different circumstance. But look what we were saying about Davis Mills and the Texans early on and how much he improved. I I just think in this particular instance, you've got to let a guy like Jalen Green figure it out as as young as he is. And with this being his first season, you got to let him figure it out. Then you get into next season and you've got some more pieces around him. If he's still showing a long gap of inconsistency or just ineffectiveness, then I say you have to take a look, but not right now. Steven Silas, after so many games, I've heard him be asked about Jalen Green, and he says, I'm not worried, and, you know, I, I'm trying to be that way. I'm trying to be the not worried guy, but game after game, when you're not seeing him adjust, and I see people say, oh, but he's adjusting. He's doing more of this and more of that. Let me give you an example of something, though, that I, I just don't understand why he doesn't adjust to something like this. He's trying to go to the rim every single time, and either lay it up or dunk. And sometimes you're not the biggest guy, and there's guys on on defense in the NBA that are going to block your shot or are going to get in your way, and, and he's just not big and strong enough to take the contact right now. There's other ways to score besides laying up and dunk. You could do a floater. We saw James Harden get great at that. We've seen other Rockets figure out the floating game. You also can pull up from 10 feet if you don't feel like the, the lane is quite there, and he can jump out of the gym. When you jump from 10 feet, you're going to be over the defense, and you're going to get your shot off as opposed to uh, getting it blocked at the rim or um, you know whatever the case may be. But that's what I want to see him do, and that's something that I thought he would do because I saw the mid-range game a little bit more when I was watching him in the G League. There are a couple of things that Steven Silas has talked about recently concerning Jalen Green. You know, one of them is hiding the ball better in penetration. The other is just finishing. And, you know, those are two things that he definitely needs to work on. I think he uh, Silas even showed him some notes that he went over with Steph Curry back in 2010. And those were a couple of the things that they talked about then. So I know, he, you know, he's, he's trying to work with Green. But, I mean, what else is he going to say? He's not worried publicly. Of course, he's going to say that. But behind closed doors, I, I think he's doing whatever he can to work with him on some of these things. But right now, it's just not translating into the results. The good news for Jalen is he just got the call that he's going to be in the dunk contest. And I say that's good news because 
The one benefit that could happen with that, Stephen, is he goes to hang around the All-Star guys for All-Star Weekend, and maybe he'll talk to some of those guys. Some of those guys will talk to him. He can pick some brains a little bit. Uh, being in the spotlight and being asked a lot of questions like, hey, uh, why do you suck compared to Evan Mobley or some of these other rookies? <laughs> maybe that'll get under his skin. Maybe that'll you know, be a little thorn in his butt and get his butt in gear a little bit. Yeah, what do you maybe a little rookie initiation kind of thing with some of the veterans. Of course, you know, he does have a relationship with Steph Curry. I know he talks to him about pointers. He did after the Golden State game the other day. But yeah, hanging around those guys, I, I guess it's a good thing, Robert, as as far as being entered in the slam dunk contest. Although after what you were just talking about, do you really want him being in the slam dunk contest? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, why not? It's not gonna hurt anything, as long as he doesn't get injured, of course. I mean it, it's good experience from him, as you said. Yeah, I, I don't see much about that that's going to go wrong except, you know, injury. But, you know, I, I you can't just sit there always worrying about injury with no, guys, especially no, some guy not. that's 19 years old and you expect to be the, your franchise guy. Well, I was looking at it more from just an effective standpoint because he, he obviously does have trouble at the rim. So maybe, hey, if nothing else, maybe it will force him to work on getting his dunks better. And uh, maybe that aspect of his game will be better once it gets back after the after the All-Star game. Trivia question for you. Can you name any of the four Rockets who've been in the dunk contest while they were in a Rockets uniform? And I can give you some hints if you need them. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. All right, here's some hints for you. The last Rocket who was in the dunk contest 10 years ago, he was a second-round pick who's a pro volleyball player now. If that doesn't help you, two of the four Rockets were both in the dunk contest twice. One of those back in the early 2000s, one of those in the 90s, both point guards. The fourth Rocket was very unusual because he was a very big man, a big man. All four players, different generations of the franchise. So there's your hints of of the four players. Well, wasn't Kenny Smith one of them? There you go. Yeah, he was one of them. And I want to say, Robert, for some reason, Robert Ori is sticking out in my mind. Not Ori. Kenny Smith was 1993. None of these guys were really teammates of each other. So that's another hint for you. One guy was in the 80s. One guy was in the early 2000s. And then the other one, like I said, 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about some of these. Kenny Smith came to mind. One of them was the first pick in the draft in the 1980s. Ralph Sampson was another one, I believe. Ralph Sampson, 1984. And Stevie Franchise. Yeah, I was thinking Steve Francis might have been one of them also. Yeah, 2000, 2002. The, the, the hard one, the one that people forget about, Chase Buttinger in 2012. Oh, yeah, I did forget about him. I, I definitely wouldn't have guessed that. Currently pro volleyball player. Hmm. Another question, uh, which this one, a little bit easier because we're going to narrow the field down some. There are three players who have gotten paid by the Rockets this year who were in the dunk contest. So three wearing the uniforms right now were in the dunk contest. Just not with the Rockets. Right. Well, let's see. John Wall, I think, was one, was he not? That's correct. Yep. And there's two more? Yes. That And, and the, the, hint, the hint, actually, or the direct hint, is they're getting paid by the Rockets. When I say getting paid by the Rockets, let me point out that he might not be getting paid by the Rockets at this very second i'm not sure about that but he he was getting paid by the rockets within the last month month and a half or so so another guy 
he might not be a rocket for long. Wasn't James Harden in it also? No, not James Harden. Eric Gordon. Oh, yeah. He Eric was in Gordon the dunk contest. Too. He's not going to be a rocket for long. But yes, he was in the dunk contest, not as a rocket. And the other one, Gerald Green, of course. The, ah, the, birthday, right. the birthday candle at the top of the rim, one of my favorite all-time dunks. And Gerald Green was a hell of a dunker. I shot his games in high school, and it was like uh, it was like a dunk contest. Yes, the uh, quote-unquote mayor of Houston, Gerald Green. There are 12 Rockets that I count, and I believe there are 12 Rockets in total who were in the dunk contest in another uniform in the history of the franchise. So of the 12, can you think of any of them, Stephen? And we're talking about huge names. And they were in the dunk contest, but not as rockets and i'm going to tell you two of them are hall of famers two others will likely end up in the hall of fame two others played for the rockets just last year and are still in the nba those are that's probably one of the harder clues but the hall of famers you 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 probably should come up with a couple of those guys yeah if i think about it dude you're killing me how about this guy named Clyde Drexler, pretty good dunker. Ever heard of him? Scottie Pippen was a, a dunk contest guy. Tracy McGrady, Dwight Howard. So McGrady and Howard, I think, are going to be Hall of Famers eventually. The two guys that were in the dunk contest that are no longer with the Rockets, but they were last year, Victor Oladipo and Ben McLemore. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Oladipo, that's I right. remember. I'd forgotten all about Ben McLemore. Um, and then the others, uh, Kenneth Fareed. Brent Berry, Josh Smith, Clarence Weatherspoon. Yeah. I, oh, <laughs> I would have never guessed that. Clarence Weatherspoon, for goodness sake. Stromile Swift and Bobby Sura. So there you go. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> That's impressive. Those are the 12. And yeah, Pippen, Drexler, McGrady, Dwight Howard. I mean, Dwight Howard, very memorable as a dunk contestant. One of the one of the best ones ever. You know, whatever you want to say about Dwight, he was fun to watch in the dunk contest. The Superman outfit and all that. I, I loved it. It was good. Last thing I had on the Rockets, Stephen, K.J. Martin. He's been a decent role player. Much has been made about his leaping abilities. Speaking of dunks, you know, his dunks and his block shots. But with all those hops... I just get so surprised at how many times he's either stripped or blocked around the rim. His dad was so strong and that just wouldn't happen to, you know, his dad, even at, you know, a young age, like Martin is right now. And KJ, you know, he doesn't look way stronger since they drafted him a year and a half ago. Honestly, this is a roster full of guys, as I was thinking about Steven, who need to get some beef on them so they can finish around the rim. You know, we talk about Jalen green. There's other guys on this team we got to get some guys in the weight room a little bit more seriously. Yeah, most definitely. You're you're right. And as far as K.J. Martin, I mean, yeah, you would think his father might be texting him after the games and, dude, watch some film on me. Did you see what I do with that? So, yeah, it's a bit surprising. It's, just, it's definitely something that he's going to get his pocket picked until he straightens that out. Yeah, I don't know if that was something that you've noticed with these games recently, but I'm just like, man, how many times? Yeah. Way too many steals. Yeah. Oh, and, and just, you know, and even block shots and, you know, there's guys in the NBA that kind of do that occasionally, but it's, it just seems like it's just happened way, way, way too often. Um, let's move to the conference championship weekend and another great NFL playoff weekend with both games decided by a field goal. I hope everybody heard uh, me and Andy last week talking about the great weekend of games last weekend. I'll try to get Andy on before the Super Bowl, but 
The Bengals beat the Chiefs in overtime after a game-tying field goal by the Chiefs at the end of regulations. At, at the end of regulation, I should say. And, and congrats to former Texan DJ Reader, who's headed to the Super Bowl. Stephen, I interviewed Reader a couple of times. Always gregarious, friendly. He's one of the rare draft picks the Texans nailed anywhere later than the first round over the last, I don't know, 20 years. But just like Brandon Brooks, they didn't keep him, and he yep. ends up in a Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, we're starting to count way too many Texans that are getting into the Super Bowl or at least going on to bigger and better things. And DJ Reader's one of the good guys, and I hated to see him leave. I mean, I knew, I knew before it happened that the Texans weren't going to pay him in order to keep him. And, you know, he went to the Bengals. You're kind of thinking, well, he may not get to a Super Bowl for a while. Well, lo and behold, here he is in the Super Bowl. So, yeah, congratulations. I mean, if he wasn't going to do it with the Texans, I'm glad he's gotten there with the Bengals. This is your yearly reminder that four NFL franchises have never been to a Super Bowl. The Lions, Browns, Jags, and, of course, the Texans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially the Texans. We, we have to be reminded of that every year. I think it should always say the Oilers slash Texans when I see that number since it was the same city. We should get credit for both franchises, no matter what the Adams family says. Well, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, if it was the fact that they basically wouldn't let Houston take the name, but if they're, yeah, if they're combining it with the Titans, unfortunately, they have been to one, but not as the Oilers. Yeah, just an amazing, amazing deal that there's only four franchises currently that haven't been there. And, and the Texans are one of them. The Texans are the youngest of the four of them, but still. And, you know, I was thinking about this, Stephen. I, I'm going to be rooting against the Rams in the Super Bowl, mainly because the awful Los Angeles sports fans see the Lakers and the Dodgers mostly. But I would be happy for Matt Stafford if the Rams win because he he did have to endure all those years with the Lions. Yeah, think about it. If he'd stayed with the Lions, you know, he may never get to a Super Bowl just as you know, Barry Sanders and so many others never got there. So, yeah, Matt Stafford, I, I mean, it, it, it's not really been too surprising because I never really felt he was the problem with the Lions. But the fact that he got there and the rest of the Rams team, yeah, I've never been an L.A. rooter myself. So um, I'm, I like cheering for the underdog. So I'm going for the Bengals in this one. Can you believe it's two years in a row that there, there's a hometown team in the Super Bowl? That's quite amazing considering had it, ha had it happened before the last no, two years? No, we kept waiting for it to happen. And then all of a sudden in the last two years is the only two times it's ever happened. I mean, what is the Super Bowl 56? So you get to the first 54 Super Bowls and nothing. And now the last two years, you've got the home field advantage, even though, you know, it wasn't supposed to be that way, but it is. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Kind of incredible that the Bengals were the worst team in the NFL two years ago. And think about this, Stephen. Joe Burrow, only in his second year, which made me wonder, how did Burrow's first year compare to Davis Mills? Because... Next year will be Davis Mills' second year, and maybe, maybe, maybe uh, he started 10 games and threw 13 touchdowns. Davis Mills started 11 games and threw 16 touchdowns. Burrow had five interceptions. Mills had 11, so a little bit more on the interception count. Burrow completed 65.3% of his passes for 2,688 yards. Mills completed 668 for 2064 yards, so pretty close. Burrow averaged 10.2 yards per catch. Mills, 10.1. Kind of interesting. Yeah, that's some definite similarities there. And, then, of course, 
unfortunately, Burrow had the injury toward the end of last year. So, you know, the fact that he's bounced back from that and has just done so well, I mean, that's that's really quite a story with him. Some people might say, well, the Texans O-line stinks, so how can Mills overcome it? Well, the Bengals O-line was ranked 20th in the league at the end of the season by pro football focus. Nothing special this year from the Bengals and maybe the Texans can make a jump with their offensive line if they actually get a group who can stay healthy. And I don't know if the new coach is going to help. Campen has moved on going to Carolina, so they're definitely going right. to get a new offensive line coach. Well, here, here's the thing, Robert. What I've been hearing for the last three weeks in these playoffs is the same thing over and over again is, well, how are the Bengals going to win if they can't protect Joe Burrow? Well, obviously they're doing it because they're in the Super Bowl. So, you know, we can say about the offensive line, and it's certainly – I mean, what did he only get sacked once in the championship game, I think? So, you know, he's he certainly had a lot of pressure on him, but at least to this point, he's come through. Yeah, there was definitely some pressure on him the previous game, lots of sacks in that one. But, yeah, I mean, and Joe Burrow looks – Really cool under pressure. Davis Mills wasn't panicking out there either. So that's that's a good sign. And, you know, I'm I, I just kind of wondering what you think, Stephen, about what's going on with the, the search right now. We got Gannon with the Eagles, the def- defensive coordinator. I, I talked to a friend of mine who's a huge Eagles fan this weekend. He actually watched the uh, AFC Championship game between the Rams and Niners with me. And he said, ah, I'm not real disappointed if Gannon leaves. So I guess he wasn't super impressed with him. The story that everybody's talking about, of course, is Josh McCown though. And what do you think? This is the, what is this? The third, the fourth time they've interviewed him over the last two years. It it feels like it's inevitable. We're talking Tuesday night, something can happen tomorrow. So who knows, but what would you think if they, if they hired Josh McCown? Well, I just go back to the fact that, you know, the the Texans are going to be insisting on hiring a guy with no head coaching experience and they just fired one. I mean, I just don't understand that whole process. Josh McCown, yeah, he interviewed last year. I think it was right before last year. And then he took a year off, basically. So they're obviously high on him. You go from David Culley, a guy who's spent decades as an assistant without being a head coach, to a guy like Josh McCown, who just only played quarterback, what, two years ago before he finally retired and into a head coaching position, if that's what they want to do. I don't know, Robert. I mean, this whole this whole process is just makes me shake my head. But this is the Texans' way, and this is what we're going to have to get used to. The only thing I would say is I hear such great things about Josh's character, but I don't know if you know how that's going to translate into being a good coach. You can have good character, sure, but you got to have the other things to be a good coach. And maybe he can relate to the players a little bit more. I don't know, but I I just wish the Texans would go out and get somebody with experience. I just. That's just what I keep clinging to. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, well, this guy's an offensive coordinator, so he's an offensive mind, a defensive mind. I'm at the point, Stephen, where I don't care about the guy being an offensive mind or a defensive mind. You can find coordinators that do that. I want a coordinator to do that. You know why? Because I want a head coach that knows how to call a timeout when they're supposed to. I want a head coach that knows how to call a challenge when when they're supposed to. When I watch Andy Reid... You know, who, yeah, he's an offensive genius, and I would love to have Andy Reid as the Texans head coach. And Andy Reid's got an incredible history, but with five seconds left in the half, Andy Reid's trying to throw a, a pass or trying to do something at the two yard line when you could get nothing and not even get a field goal when you've already got the momentum in the game. That tells me that 
you know, Andy Reid was not paying attention maybe enough to what was going on on the field. Maybe he's so caught up in his playbook or he's so confident, maybe overconfident in his offense that he's like, oh, well, we'll score a touchdown. It won't matter. And then you throw a stupid screen pass there, too, to Tyree Kill. So that wasn't good. But I just want somebody to make those big decisions and make them well. I don't care if he hasn't been a great offensive coordinator or a great defensive coordinator. I want somebody that's a leader and that can hire the right guys. Look, Mike Vrabel, he was never a defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator. Mike Vrabel, though, has been a fantastic head coach for the Titans. They're way overachieving with him. You've got to coach both sides of the ball when you're a head coach. I mean, it, you're going to be probably well-versed in one side or the other, but when you're a head coach, you got to coach both sides of the ball, and that's where you delegate. You, you have a coordinator on one side or the other, you know, that's not – well, on both sides, actually. So, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And didn't Mike Vrabel he, – he did – was the defensive coordinator for one year, was he not, before he went to Tennessee? Yeah, and he sucked. Uh, yeah, I should and say. It wasn't, it wasn't a great outcome, <laughs> but he certainly has turned it into something with the Titans as far as being their head coach. Yeah, I guess I, I, I need to factor that in. Maybe I tried to forget that, but still, I mean, he, yeah, he, <laughs> he, he did it one year and he was no good. And, and I don't think it would have made a big difference as him, for him as a head coach that he got that one year as a DC under his belt. I don't know if that would have mattered a whole lot. And the other thing is with you know, McCown and, and I'll defend the Texans and play devil's advocate. Cause, cause why not? Nobody else will defend the Texans ever. So I'll, I'll try it just for the hell of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at what Josh McCown did. He was a quarterback in the NFL for a long time. He watched a lot of football from the sideline. He had to take a lot in over those years. He worked for a lot of different guys. He was around a lot of different quarterback minds and coaching minds and stuff like that, that has to matter a little bit. And, you know, if you're a quarterback, there's some natural leadership skills that should be there. So you would assume those are there. I've heard great things about him as a person and as a leader for for, for those that, you know, knew him. So maybe that's there. You, You get scared because, oh, he's a big Christian and we know Jack Easterby and all this stuff. But at the same time, you know... Nick Casario is not an idiot and Nick Casario wants to win. That guy works his tail off 24 seven. So I, I, I think if he's looking at him seriously and this seriously for this long, then he must be seeing something. Well, I think Josh McCown could develop into a, a very good coach. I just, I mean, I'm a little concerned that he didn't at least have a year or two under his belt as an assistant and kind of see it from that side. But you're right, Robert, you know, the, the one good thing, or if there is a good thing about being a backup, no matter what position you're playing and no matter what sport you do sit on the sidelines a lot and you do observe it's it's a different kind of observation than when you're actually playing the game because you can see things that you may not necessarily see when you're in the game so from a knowledge standpoint you know and and just you know having that grasp Josh McCown has it but will it translate in being a head coach just from his lack of coaching experience and then you go right to the NFL without any kind of transition I guess that's what I wonder about. Yeah, he was in the NFL. Let's not forget, this guy was in the NFL. It was from a long time. 2002 to yeah, 2019. Years, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, he was at, he was at Arizona, Detroit, uh, Oakland briefly, Carolina, Chicago, Tampa, Cleveland, the Jets, uh, even the Eagles. So, yeah, he, he bounced around to a bunch of different teams. You know, had to had to run across some really good people over that time. I mean, 
you know, even on bad teams, there's good NFL minds on those teams. We know that they get other jobs and they succeed there. And there's reason that they were hired to begin with. So you got to factor all that stuff in. But, uh, you know, Brian Flores, I, I, I haven't got the feeling he's going to get the job, but Brian Flores still in the running, you know, somebody that we saw succeed and he's got the good relationship with Casario. So we'll see what happens. But um, th- it seems like it's between Flores, Gannon, and McCown at this point. And I thought D'Amico Ryans maybe potentially could get an interview coming out of the fact that he- he's now available with them losing in the NFC Championship game. But uh, we're talking Tuesday night. And even though the Texans keep things pretty quiet, I, I figured I would hear if, if they were going to interview D'Amico at this point. Yeah, they haven't so far. I know a lot of people. I, mean, I would have loved to see them interview D'Amico. I, I certainly think he might actually be. He, he would be a better choice for me at this point. But it doesn't look like that's going to happen. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, Brian Flores, nobody's actually scooped him up yet either, which kind of makes you wonder. So, yeah, it, I mean, it really could be among anybody at this point. The other big story in the NFL outside of the Texans, because everybody's talking about the Texans head coaching job, I'm sure. But <laughs> the other big story, Tom Brady retires. And I, I don't want to go over how great Tom Brady is. I know everybody's sick and tired of it. and Don't want to hear about it as a Houston fan. But I, I, I will take it from a, a Houston angle. And it, it's just crazy to think that he was around so long that David Carr and Davis Mills both faced Brady in a Texans uniform. Ooh. Mills was born October 21st, 1998, Tom Brady was drafted a year and a half later. Jamie Sharper and Garrett Wallow both faced Tom Brady. Again, Jamie Sharper and Garrett Wallow. So did Corey Bradford and Nico Collins. Hmm. Talk about one generation to the next. And believe me, Texans fans are not going to be sorry to see Tom Brady leave after the way he raked the team, you know, like so many other quarterbacks. But, you know, when you talk about an underdog, I mean, here's a guy that nobody was talking about, and yet he gets his chance. It's unfortunate that he got his chance as a result of an injury, but he got his chance, and he never let go of it. You know, it just goes to show that you don't have to necessarily be a top draft pick, that you never know what's going to happen in those middle rounds, who you might come up with. But who would have guessed at that time that Tom Brady was going to be the GOAT. Who would have guessed that Davis Mills would be the heir apparent, uh, eighth quarterback pick in the draft? No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, he's only got one year, so maybe in 10 years, you might be saying that, Robert. Just seeing if anybody's paying attention out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first time the Texans faced Brady, okay, this was 2003. I went to that game as a spectator with original Houston Sports Talk podcast host, R.G. Seal. Tony Banks was the Texans quarterback. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Tom Brady threw a TD pass with 48 seconds left to tie the game. Vinatieri kicks a field goal to win in overtime. Mike Vrabel actually had an interception in that game. But, Stephen, this wasn't the only time I was in the building for a Patriots win on a Vinatieri field goal at NRG Stadium that season because... The Super Bowl. Exactly. Yeah. And I was at the Super Bowl in 2004 doing freelance for Fox Sports New England. One of my major memories is sitting in the media room talking to Entertainment Tonight's Maria Menounos, who was wearing in the media room at the Super Bowl a Tom Brady jersey. Wow. Okay. Well, talk about no cheering in the press box. <laughs> I guess it was. That's interesting. But it just, boy, it just seems so long ago. 
and yet it doesn't. That, you know, Tom Brady came into the NFL in the early 2000s, and he's been, what, 22 years? It, I mean, in some ways it seems like forever. some ways it doesn't. And if you go back to that Super Bowl, the other thing, and I've told the story before, uh, I was standing there during halftime in the bowels of the stadium, and Janet Jackson walks by me and takes a right and goes out the tunnel, and everything changed within the next 15 to 20 minutes the history of you know a lot of different things including Janet Jackson's career seemed to turn on a dime and now there's stories after her documentary which I saw this weekend by the way fantastic I I recommend seeing that I mean I'm a Janet fan so I'm a little bit biased but her her career totally got screwed in that moment and you know Les Moonves the president of CBS apparently tried to screw her career after that according to a story that came out this weekend, and, and which is not surprising because, as we found out over the last few years, Les Moonves, not so great a guy, but it, it, yeah, I, I, that Janet Jackson thing, it makes me so angry, Stephen, because she was vilified for that, and, and it was like a scarlet A, and it was, it was a joke. It's a total joke. Well, and, and people have done worse and have been forgiven for it. And, and here's the thing, Robert, I'll, I'll tell you from a personal perspective, I was working for a radio station that was owned by CBS at the time that that was going on. And yeah, Les Moonves was not a popular person, even in our own company. So it, it's not really that surprising at all. But, you know, because of that incident, I'll never forget every year after that, at least once a year, we had to undergo training about what is considered explicit material on the air and how do we handle that? We had to do that every single year. It was like a whole bunch of questions they'd ask you. And if you got one wrong, you had to keep going until you got them all right. So yeah, from that perspective, I I was actually working for CBS when that whole thing happened. And as a result, yeah, we had to pay for that every year. We had to take that kind of training. Yeah. Just, it it made me so mad. And I watched that documentary and I, I, I was just glad this weekend to see people, Given a little respect again to Janet. She got a little, little respect, I think, in the last couple of years because she got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame finally, and that was long overdue. Yeah. The number that just blows me away, Stephen, her last nine albums that she's put out, and she's put out about nine since, I don't know, I, at late 80s, I, I think nine in the last 33, 34 years. Um, so not super prolific, but of those nine, seven of them, went to number one and two went to number two. So all of them were top two albums and she had a run where five in a row were number one. Yeah, quite a career. And it's not just the family name that does it. She's very talented. I think, I think Escapade is probably my favorite Janet Jackson song. If I, I must admit. Great song. And yeah, the, the fact is she's, she's as talented or close to it as Michael, maybe not the dancer that Michael is, but man, I don't know anybody who is. <laughs> yeah. That's he's on another planet there, but uh, uh, let's move to the Astros and still in a baseball lockout. So not much to talk about as far as off season news usually, but there was some actually fun Astros news. The Astros inducted longtime executive Tal Smith, former guest on Houston Sports Talk, and 70s and 80s outfielder Terry Poole into their Hall of Fame. Were you a Terry Poole fan, Stephen? You know, I liked him. I mean, he was solid. I mean, he had a 280 lifetime batting average, and he batted leadoff most of the time. So, yeah, during that period, 
he was the Astros' leadoff hitter, so pretty respectable. I mean, I, I was glad to see him get in. I mean, he's certainly another all-around good guy uh, from Canada, of course. And, you know, he played 14 of his 15 years with the Astros, and the only two players who have played any longer than that with the Astros are the obvious ones, Greg Biggio and Jeff Bagwell. So, you know, Terry Poole hung around a very long time with the Astros, put up some pretty solid numbers, and, of course, you know, he was part of that first team that went to the playoffs in 1980. And I think the fear sometimes when you're doing this Astros Hall of Fame thing and you're you're trying to pick somebody every year is, okay, are we going to get desperate? Is everybody going to deserve it? Well, let me just throw this out there for those wondering what makes Terry Poole so special. And here, here's the resume. He had an 855 OPS and a 372 batting average in 13 playoff games. Big time right. clutch hitter. Big yep. time. Yeah. Hit 526 in the 1980 Phillies playoff series, which set a then NLCS record. Terry Poole's fielding percentage is the 18th best outfield percentage in the history of the sport. It wasn't just that he didn't make mistakes. He could cover ground in the Astrodome, too. He racked up 217 career steals, really speedy guy, smart base runner, as as you remember, Stephen. And he ranks in the Astros' top 10 in war, games played, and hits. And, oh, by the way, you mentioned Canada. He's a member of the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, you know, he patrolled center field about as well as anybody. And as you said, Robert, he was he was the model of consistency. And, no, I, I cannot remember one instance where Terry Poole dropped a ball that you know, determine the outcome of a game. I mean, this guy was as solid as it gets. So, yeah, I'm I'm certainly happy that he got in, and I'm definitely happy Tal Smith got in. I mean, you talk about somebody that deserves it. Tal Smith certainly does and had several different times with the Astros. And, you know, my thing about Tal Smith is that no matter where he goes, the guy just wins, period. Right, right. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Tal in just a second, but – you know, one of the big ideas behind the Astros Hall of Fame and doing this type of thing every weekend, each year, or, you know, once a year, where you make it an event by inducting people, it becomes that moment on the field to celebrate them. And that's part of the whole idea. Stephen, like I said, with like with we're talking about with Terry Poole, I mentioned my concern over the first three years is they put too many into the Hall of Fame too quickly. I thought you should spread it out as much as possible. You start running out of legit people. Before Pool and Tal, they had put 22 people in over the first two years. That's a ton, yeah. including that massive inaugural class of 16. Are we going to run out of players soon? I mean, how quickly, Stephen, do we get to Tony Osabio <laughs> and Craig Reynolds? I was, yeah, it's funny. You, you mentioned Craig Reynolds. His name popped into my mind today. It's like, well, they're not going to try to put Craig Reynolds in, are they? Yeah, yeah. The first year, Robert, as you said, there were there were 16. I think 14 of them were players. Now, Gene Elston and Milo Hamilton got in, you know, and then you had Roy Hoffines and some. But yeah, it was quite a quite a launch when they first started it in 2019, and then of course 2020 they had six. Last year they didn't name anybody, I think, because of you know the COVID. And then of course this year. So, yeah, you start – I mean, I, I did some thinking about it, and there's some names that, you know, you could still say would definitely deserve it. Art Howe would be one of them. I, I would like to see Art get in. Of course, you know, he was uh, traded to the Astros from the Pirates after the 1975 season, played through 1982, I think, with the Astros, yeah. 
before playing one more season with the Cardinals. You know, he could play all four infield positions, mostly spent time at second and third. Of course, he managed the Astros for a time. So I could see Art Howe, you know, possibly getting in. Uh, Brad Osmus might be another one. Yeah, he wasn't a great hitter, but he kind of had that Martin Maldonado effect. And he was with the Astros a couple of different times, really knew how to handle a pitching staff, just like Maldonado does. There's a, a closer that we don't think too much about anymore. And unfortunately, he passed away back in 2008. But how about Dave Smith? Oh, who yeah. played from 1980 to 1990. He was the team's primary closer the last six seasons. He holds the Astros' record for games pitched with 586, and he had 199 saves. So just off the top of my head, there are some names. But, yeah, if you keep going at the pace of the first two years, Robert, uh, you're going to be scraping and scratching in the next five years. Right, right. And and I'm going to throw some names out at you, too. Uh, Glenn Davis, would yeah. you put him in? yeah. I would. Yeah, he was part of that 86 team, you know, and, and had some good uh, good years at first base, had power. Mike Hampton? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Mike Hampton. You definitely got to put him in there. Ken Caminetti. Yeah, I think you have to. I mean, you know, you're getting into the area where the MLB Hall of Fame starts going, but I think you've got to put Caminetti in at some point with the Astros. I don't know about you, but I've got to put Brad Lidge in there. Yeah, Brad Lidge would be another closer you certainly have to think about. Moises Alou? Yeah. Alan Ashby? You know, I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth about Alan Ashby. He had you know, spent some good years with the Astros. Again, he was part of that 80 team. I'd have to dig deeper into his numbers probably. What if you combined it with his broadcasting career with the Astros? Yeah, if you combine it with his broadcasting, I think so, absolutely. Rusty Staub? Well, no, that's intriguing. I mean, Rusty had most of his better years with the Mets, but he, of course, started out with the Astros, one of their original players. He played five years. He was about, I think he was about from maybe 19 to age 19 to 24. But right. he did he did have either one or two all-star appearances. He did. So, yeah, you, you might have to consider him at some point, I'd say. They haven't put in Phil Garner yet, right? No. No, Garner's not on the list. But you'd have to put him in there, not just as a player, but obviously, you know, managing the 2005 World Series. More as a manager than a player. Those, the 04 yeah. and 05 season, those are two of the greatest comebacks in Major League Baseball history in, oh, yeah. in, the, in the regular season. Absolutely. And I'll tell you somebody, and, and, you know, we're not just talking about players, but I'll tell you somebody else who deserves to be in. And unfortunately, it'd be posthumous. But Bill Verdon, I think, deserves to be in as well. That's a good one. Um, you've got... Now, some interesting ones. These are the ones that are borderline. I, I don't know what you would think about some of these names, but Roger Clemens. Yeah, it's, I, I wondered about that, too. It's, it's like, well, if, if the MLB doesn't want to put him in, will the Astros put him in? Because obviously he was one, you know, as much an engineer as anybody for those 2004 and 2005 comebacks, along with Andy Pettit, who I'm, I'm sure you might mention that name again at, at some point. Enos Cabell, mediocre player, but you combine it with the fact that he's been in the organization for a while. Is that good enough? Yeah, I thought of Enos as well. I think as much for his community contributions with the Astros, I mean, he's still affiliated with them. I might put him in under that category, but yeah, kind of a so-so player. He he played with them for quite a few years, but I think I'd base it more on a combined factor than his play on the field. A couple of pitchers, Daryl Kyle, Dallas Keuchel, D the DKs. Yeah, Dallas Keuchel, that's an intriguing name because obviously, you know, I remember when he first came out and how inconsistent he was and he got it together. 
Darren Kyle was very up and down, but you know, of course, his claim to fame was that no hitter. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of on the fence about Darryl Kyle. I I might say Dallas Keuchel. A couple of outfielders. Uh, this is interesting because this guy had a really good career when you put it all together. Hunter Pence. I thought about Hunter Pence too. I just I don't know. You know, he he was very highly talented. I remember when he came up, how. Everybody was talking about him as the next great thing. I'm just not so sure that he graded out the way most people expected. I I might have to think about him a bit. With the Astros, he was rookie of the year, third place his rookie year, all-star in 2009. And then that was it. But you look at the rest of his career and he's got uh, three other all-star appearances. He's got some World Series. I just don't know if that's good enough to be an Astros Hall of Famer, but I figured I'd throw his name. Here's another name for you. Uh, How about Kevin Bass? Another solid player. You know, it's kind of like Terry Poole. He's kind of behind the scenes, but, you know, Kevin Bass, yeah, I might be borderline on him as well. It was a very short career, but Jeff Kent had had a big moment with the Astros, uh, took them to their first playoff series win in history, and, you know, his career is borderline hall of fame i think he should end up in the hall of fame at some point yeah he might and now as far as his time with the astros it was pretty short but it was you know the period of time that he got there and what he did you know might merit some consideration but i just i don't know about his longevity with the team might hurt him in that regard dickie thon oh definitely a sentimental choice Dickie Thon, he was he was always one of my favorite players and you know again not having that you know gotten hit in the face like that who knows how much better his career would have been after that. These guys seem to be automatic down the road. Springer, Correa, Verlander, Bregman, Yuli. So that, but that's going to be a while down the road. Right. My out-of-the-box pick is a guy named Jack Amuni. He is the guy who designed the rainbow uniforms. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, kind of some non-players and you get into broadcasters. I think our, our our friend Bill Brown deserves some love at some point. Sure, sure. He's on the committee right now. So I, I, can he vote for himself? I don't uh, know. He'd probably have to get off the committee then if he wants to be considered. But, you know, you, you talk about Jack Mooney. Well, what about Mike Acosta? But he's on the committee as well. So, yeah, he'd have to come off too. But, I mean, Mike Acosta, you talk about a historian and, and has so much, you know, so many years with the Astros and just all the knowledge that he has. And of course, he was one of the people instrumental in getting this Hall of Fame going that at some point, yeah, you might have to ask him to step down from the committee for another year. But I think Mike Acosta would be a good pick. If you guys want to feel ancient out there uh, for you longtime Astros fans, Nolan Ryan turned 75 this week. Speaking of Astros Hall of Famers, and if you've Never heard it. Listen to our Nolan Ryan show. It's episode 409. There's there's stories from Kevin Bass, Bob Aspermani, Kenny Han, and Nolan's biographers, Mickey Herskowitz and Rob Goldman. If you want to hear our long conversation with Tal Smith, it's episode 392. I'll try to re-upload that near Astros Hall of Fame weekend. One, One last Hall of Fame note, because I had a long conversation with Galen White last week, Stephen, and you were going to be on it, but uh, some some other stuff came up, but... I know you've had a chance to hear it. What did you think about what Galen had to say? Well, he's certainly right about how politicized the Hall of Fame is. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, Robert, baseball's in such a mess right now. They, I mean, they've got so many things wrong. You know, you've got the lockout going on, the whole thing about how it's falling as, as far as the marketing is concerned, especially with the younger generation and how slow the game is. 
so many things wrong with it. You know, when you look at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame, the, the Hockey Hall of Fame, and you think about, yeah, there are years where you might hear of, well, you know, why didn't this guy get in? Or why on earth did this guy get in? I don't think you hear it as much about those sports as you do in baseball. It, it seems that every single year we're sitting here talking about, well, why didn't so-and-so get in? Or, you know, why did this guy get in? if so-and-so hasn't gotten in. But I just think there, there's a lot of favoritism going on with the writers. You know, if they don't like you, they don't vote for you, regardless of what kind of a player you were. Now, you can say what you want about Barry Bonds and Roger Clements and that whole PED thing, but at some point, that's going to have to come to roost, too. So I, I did, there's just so much wrong with the Baseball Hall of Fame right now. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. The problem with the Baseball Hall of Fame is the, the cheating. The, you don't have this type of cheating going on, or at least it's not out there like it is in baseball. You don't, you don't have it in the NFL. You don't have it in the NBA. You know, there, there, there's some steroids that go back to the NFL, but they, right. they, they've managed seemingly to clean a lot of that stuff up and, and you just don't hear about it. But in baseball, it's not just that there were steroids, but there's HGH and there's greenies and there's prescription stuff that they use over the last few years. And they're they're using sandpaper and they're scuffing and they're using this thing to put on the baseball. And, they're you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. Not to mention you've got the betting issues with Pete Rose or Shoeless Joe Jack. I mean, it's just there's so many things that relate back to cheating and and that's why baseball gets so much conversation and I, I guess you know conversation is maybe good for your sport but in this case it's not, at what point does a conversation when it's all bad at what point is that a bad thing <laughs> well yeah it's it's not helping baseball at all and you know what robert that's the problem i mean as i recall with the nfl steroids thing they they dealt with it pretty quickly it didn't take them too long to grab hold of the problem and clean it up Baseball has been guilty over and over of letting these problems fester until the public outcry gets so bad that they step in. And, and that's what's muddying the waters with these Hall of Fame votes is, yeah, there's been so much of it going on in so many different eras, you know, especially in the last 20 years, that when you're talking about letting these guys in or not letting them in, you know, how do you draw it? How do you get it? And so that's a big thing that baseball has kind of shot itself in the foot when it comes to Hall of Fame voting. Yeah, it's it's a mess, and I, I I don't know what you do because there's just too much water under the bridge with a lot of this stuff, and you know it, it it's it's so big of a mess, and base, baseball it, it's a mess altogether, and right now they're 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 doing the lockout stuff, and they're, they're trying to negotiate, and are you paying attention at all to the lockout news? Are you trying to keep up with this stuff? Well, I'm paying attention, but there isn't much to pay attention to, so it's not that hard, and you know spring training is starting February sixteenth. At this point, doesn't look like that's going to happen. So, yeah, I'm keeping a close eye on it. But, you know, they've made some progress as far as, you know, the, the free agency age, the players dropped that, a couple other things. But they're far apart on the major issues, and that's what the holdup is. Yeah, I, I, I just wake me when it's over with, I guess. I, I, I'm, I'm like sort of side-eyeing it a little bit out of the corner of my eye here, but not really. Not really. Yeah, wake me up when spring training starts. That's that's all. And hey, college baseball is going to be starting, so I'll be paying attention to that since I can watch some baseball. Yeah, let's uh, let's end the show on a, on a really positive here, and, and I, I can't end it without giving a hat tip to Rafael Nadal. He wins the Australian Open, moves into first place in tennis majors all-time with 21, and Stephen, 
Don't ask me why, but I'm up at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning. Uh, I look, he's down 2-0 in sets, but I'm like, it's Nadal. It's not over. I'm going to keep an eye on it. So I had recorded the Janet Jackson doc. I'm watching that. I flip over like every so often. Here he comes. There comes Nadal again. At age 35, he goes five hours, 24 minutes on the final day of the tournament to win it. Even more amazing, in his last three Aussie matches, he takes 13 sets and 14 hours to beat three of the best 20-something-year-old tennis players in the world. What is left to say about the heart of Rafael Nadal? So does that make him the Tom Brady of tennis? I mean, the guy is 35, as you said. That's pretty ancient when it comes to tennis, but you wouldn't know it by the way he plays. And, I mean, I, I've seen some inspiration from other tennis players like Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras and, you know, well, even Serena Williams. You can talk about her, how, you know, it just didn't used to be. When you played in your 30s, you were pretty much done. But these are guys and gals that, are defying the odds and Rafael Nadal. I mean, that, yeah, five hour set. You'd think the guy would have collapsed before it was over, but beating these young guys, I mean, it's just, you know, as you said, there's just not much more you can say about it. Yeah. We got to also just throw out the fact that, Hey, age is not what it used to be. You know, they, this whole thing of 40, 50 is the new 40, 40 is the new 30. It used to be a joke. It's kind of the case these days because, you know, I I, I go back and I'm, I'm the old man that loves to go watch old movies and old television shows and this and that. And you go back and watch the stuff and you look at some guy and you're like, oh, how old was he when he did this part? And you look and you're like, oh, my God, he was only 50 years old. He looks like he's 75. He looks like he's about to die. And you see that with so much of what when you're watching these, you know, movies from the 50s or the 40s or whatever. Yeah, I mean, even going back to the 60s and 70s, I mean, we're aging much different. We're taking care of ourselves differently. So, yeah, Nadal, give him some credit for, for lasting longer. But at the same time, it, it's going on everywhere. I mean, you, you mentioned Tom Brady, but we saw it with Phil Mickelson. We saw it with Tiger Woods a couple of years ago. I mean, and sport after sport. Uh, now you look back and I think people aren't going to be as impressed with what Nolan Ryan was doing in his mid forties, but my goodness, nobody else was doing what he was doing back then. And, and Nolan Ryan, you talk about a guy speaking of somebody that, uh, you know, just was incredible, uh, way too far into his career than you would have ever thought, you know, he's 75 right now. And it's like, wait a second, he just retired, right? Yeah, it does seem that way. And, you know, you're hearing, as you said, you're hearing more and more about this. In fact, let's just to get back to Tom Brady for a second, and we can tie this into the Texans, Robert. It appears as if the oldest quarterback in the NFL now is 39-year-old Fitzmagic. Wow. How about that? Yeah, well, and he and he has he always had the beard of Moses, so that's not surprising. <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. I mean, he probably looks older, but yeah, I mean, it it is interesting, and I think a lot of it, from an athletic uh, athletic standpoint, I think a lot of it just has to do with the way they train nowadays. People like Tom Brady, Rafael Nadal, Nolan Ryan, you know, these guys knew how to train their bodies to the absolute maximum of staying fit, and you know, it's hard to do that year after year after year. But these guys have found a way to do it. They just push themselves over and over, you know, probably past the limits to keep doing what they were doing. 
So you're telling me chain smoking and drinking a bunch of Bud Lights is not the answer if you're going to last that long, right? Yeah, well, just, you know, you could have asked Babe Ruth how that worked out for him, I guess. And uh, people, <laughs> yeah, there may have been a few that defied the odds, but yeah, not really. So yeah, Nadal just, uh, wow, you know, just, it, it's not just that he did it at that age, but you know, he, he breaks the record and he just keeps going along and you can't find anybody to really say a bad word about Rafael. Same, same thing with Federer, two guys that just, you know, I, I don't know if we always can, I know the tennis fans, the diehards will go, oh my God, they're, the, they're incredible. But I, I think the rest of us that just tune in every now and then to the majors, I don't know if we appreciate them as much as we should. And it's it's because they're not loud and obnoxious or annoying or making news all the time off the court. Everything about those two guys is on the court, and and it, and that's it. Well, yeah, and, and let's and and don't misunderstand. Players like John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, you know, they were great players. There's no doubt about it. But let's be honest, Robert. Most people, when they would tune in to a match, seeing one or both of those guys play, they wanted to see who was going to be the first one to throw a racket or, you know, do something absolutely crazy. You know, it's, it's unfortunately, it's like going to a race, hoping to see a crash or a hockey game and a fight breaks out. That's what a lot of it is. It's not that way now. You just don't see a lot of that. What you're seeing is pure talent on the court, like with, with people like Rafael Nadal. Right, right. I just uh, can't, can't wait till we, we can really put some of that stuff in perspective. And it, it's going to be fun to figure out, was it Federer who was the best? Was it Nadal? Was it Djokovic? And the story still being written. And hopefully all three of the guys, once again, will be playing in the same major. That's one thing that uh, it seems like it's it's less and less happening as, as they, the, the guys get older. But we'll, we'll see. Uh, that's all we got for this one. Great to have you back, Stephen. Uh, it's really good to talk to you again. And, Absolutely. I'm um, looking forward to the Super Bowl in a week and a half. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to be looking forward to a Rockets game and, and watching them and being excited that it's a close game every now and then. That would be nice. Yeah, it would be nice <laughs> if they'd win on their home floor for a change, too. Absolutely. But, uh, hey, we get to see Jalen Green in the slam dunk contest. So a reason to watch on All-Star Weekend since we don't have any All-Stars. But until next time, everybody, light the fuse and let's get some wins, Rockets. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.